So Money Episode 752, Ask Farnoosh, with special co-host Jim Brown. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome to the show, July 6th. 2018. Tomorrow is my mom's birthday. So happy birthday to mom. Shout out to Sheila out West. Hope you're enjoying the weather, the new year, and we love and miss you. This week, my family and I, we were at the shore in New Jersey with uh, my parent, my husband's side of the family. We all went for a family week-long trip to Avalon, New Jersey. Anybody uh, familiar with Avalon? It's kind of what people call the Philly side of Jersey, where a lot of the Philly residents will go and vacation because it's kind of the closest, nicest beaches there. And it was a lot of fun. We had our kids, which, you know, both kids four and now 16 months. And then our cousin, their cousin, Dylan, who's also about 15 months. And for the first time in a long time, the adults outnumbered the children, which is it's always good when the adults, the older people outnumber the little people. Um, it means that there are more hands on deck and mommy can go have a glass of wine if she wants at four o'clock in the afternoon on vacation. doesn't always happen, but it was a really fun, relaxing week. And uh, of course, July 4th, always a, a fun uh, event with the kids because of the fireworks and all that good stuff. So I hope everybody had a safe, happy July 4th week. We're back to business today with your money questions. As you know, Friday is the show is dedicated to helping you get through uh, some of the financial challenges you have in your life. I encourage you to reach me through many channels. One is the website, of course, somoneypodcast.com. You can leave a voicemail there, which we have one today. Uh, you can write a question, but also Instagram is a great way to reach me. And I just want to give a quick tip about how the best way to reach me on Instagram is, is first follow me and then send me your question. The problem is if you're not following me and you send me a question, it gets buried. It goes into a different folder. It's easier for me to just quickly see the people who are already following me, their questions. Instagram does a better job of putting those questions uh, closer within reach and more visible. And second, make sure that it's not too long. I'll be totally honest. If I'm reading a question that's like 500 words long or got a lot of numbers and I really appreciate that, but it it exhausts me a little bit. And if I'm using Instagram, I'm usually on the go, like I'm in between commutes or I'm sitting in front of the TV and using Instagram. So I'm not like a thousand percent concentrated. And if I'm reading something, it's going to reduce the the chance of me actually replying in a timely manner. So those of you know, if you sent me really long questions, I do respond. They just take extra long time for me to do that because it's just it requires more uh brain power for me to especially on Instagram where it's you know, I have to use my phone as opposed to my laptop to type uh, answers or the so anyway, just keep them short and sweet. Follow me first. If your question is particularly long, then I think in that case, go to so moneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh and send it in there. You have about 200 or so characters. Uh, you could also email me, farnoosh at farnoosh.tv. So keep that in your phone and um, send me when you got a question. But today's 
co-host is a fan of the show. He's a friend. He's super experienced when it comes to money. Let me just tell you a little bit about Jim Brown. Brag about him for a second here. He's a forensic accountant. He's also an investor, a securities litigation consultant, a writer. He has worked on securities fraud cases that have resulted in settlements in excess of $5.4 billion. I imagine he might have been really busy during the uh, the recession when we had a lot of uh, white-collar crime. He also is the co-author of a book called Financial Statement Fraud Casebook, Baking the Ledgers and Cooking the Books. It's definitely a good summertime beach read. I don't know about you. Jim Brown, welcome to the show. Thanks, Farnoosh. So glad to be here. Wow. So you have a very specific career. You've had a very like interesting path. What got you interested in focusing on fraud? But to me, that sounds like a job that never ceases to surprise. <laughs> Just the level of maybe fraud or the way that people perform fraud, especially when it comes to Wall Street and white collar stuff. So um, I, I began as an auditor working uh, for a public accounting firm, and it, it was great experience. Um, but you kind of do the same thing year after year. And uh, I was looking to do something different. And I was always fascinated by um, the, the, the mindset and the analysis that is inherent in forensic accounting and investigative work. And it just so happened, it was serendipitous that I was looking at the time that the uh, that all the the big frauds in the financial uh, markets began to to appear, uh, WorldCom, Enron, and those types of cases. And uh, I I started working for a securities litigation firm that that worked on those types of cases, and you know I loved it. It was it was a bit of an adjustment with the mindset at first because I had an auditing mindset, and and now I'm working with attorneys, and and they they litigate, so you have to think like them and learn to think like them and what's going to uh, make a case successful. And, uh, and I love it. It was, it was just so fascinating. It was, it was, you never knew what was going to happen each day, what type of case would, would appear. And, uh, and it's, it's great work. What's been the most interesting case and why? Well, Tyco, uh, Securities case um, that involved Dennis Kozlowski and other, executives at Tyco was, was the case that I found most interesting because of the enormity of it and also the, um, I guess, somewhat egregious nature of some of the acts, uh, the, the mishandling of corporate assets and, and, uh, and, and the amount of money that, that, that um, was frivolously spent. Um, and, and I, so that one was interesting for a whole bunch of reasons. There, there was also the trappings of his, uh, the party for his wife in Sardinia, and it was a real TV type of case. Yeah, there was that shower curtain for like, I don't know, how much did he spend on the shower curtain in his I office? Remember. I, I covered remember. that case as a financial journalist at New York One at the time. That was like <laughs> when the new, when the headlines would come through like the, the wires, it was always one shock after the next. So, so you have to remember, for it, for an accountant doesn't have the most adventurous and interesting life on a day-to-day -day basis. So to have a case like this, where there's all of these um, interesting, interesting events transpiring, I, I found it fascinating. You know, there was artwork uh, traveling to different states and things like that. It was, it was, it was, it was really interesting. And so, tell us about how, where you are today. I understand you're doing a lot of education and literacy around investing. What sort of made you make this pivot? And and Essentially, are you still working in litigation or is this kind of a new 
chapter in your career? I'm not. I'm actually transitioning. So, so mm-hmm. why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing now is I want to provide investors with the roadmap I wish I had when I started more than 20, almost 30 years ago. Um, because it, it can be overwhelming, especially if you're not in the financial industry. There's a lot to learn. And um, it can be very simple if you know how to look and how to approach it and what strategies are more effective than others. And, and to understand what works best for you and in, in, in the financial markets, both from a choosing a strategy and investment point of view and how you, you know, how your mindset will most work effectively in the financial markets. You're doing courses, YouTube channel. First, tell us like how you're reaching people and then the target audience. Right. So uh, the way I'll be reaching people, I'll be launching a, a YouTube channel uh, later this month, Your Best Mindset on YouTube. And it, there'll be uh, videos probably about five to 10 minutes long explaining a variety of financial and mindset topics. And uh, the, w- the way it'll work is people will subscribe, hopefully, <laughs> to the channel and, and notify. And, and then if they find the stuff valuable, which I think they will, uh, I'm offering uh, courses. I'll, I'm launching a course later this month on June 27th. Um, Clear and Confident Investing is the name of the course. And then later this year, I'll be offering a flagship version of the course. What I love is that you had mentioned earlier to me before we were recording that your target customer client is a woman. Tell us a little bit more about who is best suited for this material. Well, my when I when I responded to your question, who who's my ideal client? I, I said a 32 year old female professional um, who is. Um, uh, making and the salary isn't really a critical matter, but but the, the 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 issue is that they value investing in themselves. They value learning and empowering themselves by understanding uh, the things that are important, like their financial future. And what I and and I think um, someone that has a, a long time horizon can can leverage the insights that I'll be sharing. So um, it, it's definitely broader than that. I think anyone with an investment horizon of ten years or more. In, in equities, at least, can benefit from any of the information I'm sharing. But I think the, the, the most leverage can be someone that is kind of a little past the, the point where they graduated school and they have a handle on their student loans and they're settled into a career and they're starting to um, see their earnings grow and they'll have some, some disposable income that they can put towards their investments. All right. Are you ready to tackle some money questions? I am ready. All right, let's get to it. We have a lot of questions from Instagram, but we also have a voicemail. So first, the question from Instagram from Jing, who says, how many accounts is considered too many or adverse when it comes to calculating your credit score? And what would be the ideal balance for the debt to credit ratio aspect of your credit score? Now, you're kind of like the investing expert. I am very much a credit geek it's not surprising that people have a lot of questions around credit, Jim, because I think there's a lot of mis- the myths out there about what actually justifies a credit score. And so I will just say to Jing, and then I'll let you chime in, that I don't think that there is such a thing as having too many credit cards. Just the number of credit cards that you have alone doesn't necessarily mean that you are somebody who has a lot of debt or doesn't, or that the credit score calculator Uh, is going to look at that as a negative. They like to see a variety of accounts. That's true. That's part of the calculation. They want to see that you've got credit cards and maybe also other kinds of credit and that you're managing everything responsibly. That's the key. Whether you have one card or 17,000 cards, 
The issue is how are you managing that credit? If you are in debt up to your nose with just one card and you're barely making uh, minimum payments every month and you've got maybe some late payments on your history, that's not going to work well for you. That Your credit score is going to ne- definitely take a hit versus somebody who's got five, six cards and she's managing them all very responsibly, paying the bills on time, paying well above the minimum, if not paying in full every month. That is going to work to her advantage. And it's less to do with the number of cards that she has, but more with the way that she's going about managing them. The second question about the ideal balance for the debt to credit ratio aspect, the technical answer is 30%. And what is a debt to credit ratio, first of all? So your FICO credit score, one of the big variables is your debt to credit ratio. And that is basically a calculation that looks at how much money you're, how much debt you're carrying compared to your credit limit on all the cards that you have. But let's just take one card for an example. Let's say you have one credit card and it's got a $10,000 limit and you're using $4,000 of that credit limit at any given time during the month. Regardless of whether you pay it off in full or not, in that moment in time, you're 40% utilized. Your debt to credit ratio is 40%. That's high. Higher than probably the credit, the FICO credit score calculators like to see. The rule of thumb is to keep it to about 30% or less. So I always say if you're going to go out there and like buy furniture or get big ticket items and put it on the credit card, try to pay it off quickly. And don't just wait till the end of the month. Like actually pay it off as you go because if you are in the market for another loan or another credit card and your credit score gets checked, it's, it could happen at any point during the month. And you don't want it to happen right after you've made some big ticket purchases that's rung up your debt to credit ratio to like 50% or maxed out your card. But I will also say that the people in this country with the best credit scores, and this is according to FICO, have a debt to credit utilization ratio of like six, seven percent. So very little. They're using very little credit at any given time. Do you have a lot of experience with credit education, Jim, or um, any any um, insights to offer Jing as she's, I think, probably looking to improve her credit score? Mostly just personal. And, and um, I've always tried to pay off balance in full each month. Um, and what I understand, my understanding is also that if you, um, if you, if you do have a higher credit score, it will also benefit you when it comes to things like mortgage rates and, and insurance rates also. So I think that's um, something to, to strive for also with paying off more than the minimum or if you can pay the whole balance off. Um, also, I, I kind of um, when people ask me this question, this is not my area of expertise at all. But I ask, you know, another thing to look at is the extent to which you're, you're living within your means, because if you're maxing out your credit card consistently, um, that's going to affect other areas of your life with respect to if you have enough money to invest, for example. So, um, and, uh, setting up emergency funds and all those other things. So, uh, yeah, um, I think you covered all the main points. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, aiming to, to pay off as much as you can each month is, is, is great. Great. Awesome. Okay. Moving on. This is also from Jing, but I don't know if it's the same Jing. And this time the question was left on SpeakPipe, which is our audio recording. And uh, let's listen to Jing. Hi, Farnoosh. I'm currently investing in one index fund through Vanguard, and I'm contributing about 3% of my income each month into it. 
I intend to leave the money in there for the next 20 years for the purpose of generating income outside of employment. Should I be diversifying and purchasing bonds and other stocks or ETFs? Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Jing, for your question. And if you are the same Jing that had the credit question, you are so money. You're asking a lot of good questions and we are appreciative of having you in the community. Jim, you're the investor here. So I'm going to let you take this question. You know, is, is it important to diversify? Well, let me take a step back. It's always important to diversify. But in this particular case, it sounds like she's got the index fund. She's not investing a ton of her money. It's just a, an aspect of her, what seems to be like an investing strategy. And she's wondering if she can just ride out this index fund or should she add some more assets to this portfolio? Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things. One, I think it's great that, that Jing is focusing on long-term savings and, and she established that already. Um, but to your point regarding diversification, it's actually critical to do that. And it sounds like since Jing has a 20-year time horizon, um, or at least a 20-year time horizon, that she, she's going to probably want to um, allocate her assets a, a little differently, definitely um, benefiting from some exposure to equities. Uh, by doing so, um, she'll be able to write out any short-term marketility and, 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 and really ignore it. I mean, I even do that myself. I really, when the market's down 500 points three days in a row, I really, I really don't even, you know, I'm not affected by it. It doesn't affect my decision making. And I think that's great to have a long-term horizon. Um, also, I'm not sure if her, her, um, her fund, it sounds like, uh, you know, it's a bond fund, is in a, in a retirement account. And, and I think that's something Jing may want to strongly consider because she'll be able to leverage from the benefit of tax deferral and, and compounding those, those tax deferred earnings in her account. So um, one, one thing to look at would be index funds. She's with Vanguard already, which is a, a wonderful company to invest with. Um, two options she may want to look at are, are, are the S&P 500 funds, either the, um, the mutual fund or the ETF version. And, and there's numerous equity-based um, index funds that Vanguard offers. So um, that's a place to start. Fidelity is also very good. And several other ones, uh, low cost is, is, is one of the keys to look for and tracking uh, that they track the indexes uh, accurately. Right on. Okay. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if she is investing in a 401k or something like that at work or what the rest of her retirement or long-term investing strategy looks like, but it sounds... I got the sense that this is just an aspect of it, right? Because maybe I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm being optimistic. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I, I agree because I think she inserted a blurb in there about generating income outside employment, meaning she would have access to this money while she's employed, right? Mm -hmm. So that's... All right. Well, good advice. And Jing, thank you for your question. Love that you used SpeakPipe. I'm trying to encourage more listeners to use it because I love hearing your voices. It makes me feel like you're right here. Okay. This is a great person on Instagram. Their name is, I couldn't find the actual name, but the name on Instagram is Team Donut Hole. Um, <laughs> sounds delicious. Um, what are the best books to teach little ones about money? Now I have some favorites. So I'm going to, and I know you do too, Jim. So I would say 
depending on their age, sounds like, you know, little ones could be five, six, seven, I'm guessing. The Millionaire Kids Club is great. It's a series of books that tackle different aspects of money. And it was written by two guests who've been on the show before, not together, but separately. They're both uh, phenomenal financial experts in their own right. Susan Beecham, who actually owns a company called Money Savvy Generation. And her whole career in life has been dedicated to financial literacy for kids. So she's got these series of books that she co-authored with Lynette Kalfani-Cox, who's another financial expert who's been on this show. Susan, again, runs Money Savvy Generation. And through that, you can find the Millionaire Kids Club books. You can find her award-winning Money Savvy Pig, which is this really cool piggy bank that has four slots, save, spend, donate, invest. Her mission in life is to really teach kids that they have options with money really empower them. And um, the way she started her company, true story, is she took her daughter's, I think it was her, her kindergarten or first first grade class to a McDonald's shareholders meeting. <laughs> She's from <laughs> Chicago. And so she went to the shareholders meeting with the kids and then took them to McDonald's to kind of connect the dots. And I think she has caught up with those kids now 20 years later, and they still remember that experience. It was one of their favorite field trips. And they will say it was like kind of the beginning of opening up their minds to money. So I would say in addition to books, Team Donut Hole, look for these teachable moments and these experiences. We can't all take our kids to shareholders meetings. And I don't think that's always <laughs> the best way to to do it. But, you know, McDonald's for sure, because kids can get it. But, uh, you know, involving your kids in your day-to-day decision-making around money, the spending decisions that you make, the saving decisions that you make, when you go grocery shopping, have the list, show your kids that you're being really thoughtful about your purchases, all these things. You know, I always say that literacy starts with uh, – witnessing um, experiences, witnessing people relate to money. And uh, it's not these sort of formalized instructions about compound interest necessarily at five years old that's going to make or break your financial life, but it's what you have been witness to and what has been explained to you as you've witnessed these things is really important. But kit- books are a great start to check out the Millionaire Kids Club series. And Jim, what are your faves? Um, well, first of all, I want to say I love the name Team Donut Hole. It's yeah, amazing. right. I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> coincidentally, my my son and my son came home from a school event last night with, with uh, some extra donut holes they had as as snacks. So, anyway, um, one one of my one of the other thing I like is is um, about the things that you said, Farnoosh, and the question is starting sooner than later is 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 one of the best things you could do as an investor. Uh, is just start that compounding machine working, start saving and 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 um, that you'll you'll appreciate that years down the road. Your children will appreciate that tremendously. One of the books that my favorite book is uh, by National Geographic. It's called National Geographic: Kids, Everything, Money. And the reason I like this book, it is filled with pictures and graphs and photos, so it's very engaging. And it's uh, at a level enough so kids can 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 understand and learn from it. But it's even I actually learned a few things about um, the history of money <laughs> by reading it. So um, it's a great resource to learn about about what money is, um, history of money, global currencies, uh, investing with money in the financial markets. And, and again, if you think your kids uh, like books with photos and, and learn well that way, the visual learners, I highly recommend that book. Um, it's probably geared towards middle school level. Older kids can benefit as well. Young, younger kids will find the, uh, the visual aspect interesting. For younger kids, there's a book uh, by Kumon. It's called My First Book of Money, Counting Coins. 
And this is more of a workbook. So this is very interactive. And, and you're counting coins of, of uh, various quantities and combinations, nickels, dimes, pennies, quarters. And, and it's a great exercise to, to you know, have your kids learn about math and, and, and while doing so, learning about money. I love this question so much. And, you know, Evan and I, speaking of like experiences, he and I went to the local grocery store and redeemed our coins. And I think they came to about $240 before fees. Uh, I sent that on Instagram. I put that on Instagram and people were really curious as to where I'd gone to redeem these coins. Apparently, Coinstar machines are nowhere to be found anymore. TD Bank has ended its uh, machine or coin counting machines. They don't have those anymore, which I find so disappointing in general because for me as a kid, that was such a, a great fun thing to do. And it and it is an opportunity there, right, to talk about why it's important to save and what, what are we going to do with this money? And he knows that we got this money and we're going to use it towards his birthday and he's going to be able to like have a party with his friends and have gifts. So he's seeing the connection. He's only four. Anyway, if anyone's interested in <laughs> redeeming their coins in Park Slope at the Key Food Grocery Store on Fifth Avenue, <laughs> they still have a machine. Thank you for your question, Team Donut Hole. Keep them coming. Also on Instagram, Jim, we have a question from Darcy, and she wants to know if there's a tool or a calculator that could help her figure out whether to continue maxing out her 403B, which she says, admittedly, it's got lackluster options, high fees, but it is tax deductible, so that is a benefit. But is there a calculator that can help her figure out whether to continue that path versus putting money in a taxable account, maybe an index fund like Jing is doing? But again, taxable accounts, they're taxable, but the benefit is that typically they have lower fees and way more options as far as where to invest. So uh, I think that, tell me if I'm wrong, Jim, I think to the extent that she can invest in this 403B where she's getting any kind of match would be smart. Like take advantage of that free money and maximize that opportunity if it's there. I strongly agree. And that, that that's probably one of the most important points, uh, aside from the tax savings. So um, one is it, it depends on where, where she is, if she, how far away from retirement. But you really have to think think, think seriously uh, if you're going to invest money in a taxable vehicle versus a, a tax-deferred vehicle for, for those reasons that you pointed out. One, if there's any matching, that's like free money added to your account. And um, as long as the fund's not losing money uh, or, 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 is, or is closely tracking the relevant benchmarks, um, those are the main things to look for. The fees are high. It depends on how high. Um, so, so one, I would check, the, I would check the returns compared to the benchmarks. I would check the fees compared to comps and benchmarks and, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe investing if she has additional, uh, disposable money to invest in, in a, in a taxable account with an index fund. I think that's a great idea, um, depending on the options. So, um, additionally, one more point, if the 403B, she said there's black luxster options, if they're just fixed income options, for example, that may be a reason to um, invest in a taxable account that would expose her to equities. Um, one other thing to, to check out is if there's an option for a self-directed 403B. So uh, when I was in corporate, I always self-directed my 401k um, because it gives you, you could invest in anything because you broad latitude with your investment choices. So that's something to look into and or if, if it's possible to roll over uh, all or a portion of her funds to a self-directed 403B, 
Um, Vanguard offers those types of services. I'll, I'll pass the link along to you, Farnoosh, if you'd like to post it in the notes. Uh, but that's something I, I would look into. So a self-directed 403B, just want to be um, clear, it wouldn't be necessarily something she could get from her employer, but she could roll it over into a, a, a separate place, like a brokerage a firm that offers this. And, yeah. It depends. The, 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 the employer may preclude uh, participants from a self-directed choice and or from rolling over while she's employed. Mm, so okay. you, it's something to look into. That's all I'm offering. I'm just saying there's that option there to look into. If it's available, great. If not, if she's limited to only fixed income, for example, investments in the fund, then, she, then it may be a good idea to invest a portion of her funds in equity if she has a very long time horizon before retiring. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Uh, I would also say, Darcy, if you have more questions, maybe you should hook up with Jim. <laughs> I know you're starting a YouTube channel, which is free and you can get a lot of more insights on investing with him. Okay. Last but not least, Sabrina on Instagram is considering graduate school for an MBA in about a year, um, which means that she would start in two years. So applying in a year and then starting in two years, she wants to cash flow this as much as possible, meaning doesn't want to really take on debt. Is there any compelling reason to open a 529 plan for herself, knowing that the timeline is just two or three years? Um, so, you know, I've talked about 529 plans a lot on the show. We have one each for our kids, though my understanding is that, you know, start early because uh, you want to allow this money to grow and um, there are a lot of tax benefits along the way. Is it something that you would still benefit from doing if just for two or three years, Jim? So uh, the answer, I think almost always, whenever I make an investment decision, the initial answer is always it depends. So um, what type of returns can you expect to generate in that exactly. short amount of time? That's really the, 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 the obvious question. Um, so I'd be hesitant. This, I love this question, by the way. This is an awesome question. It's right up my alley with, with, with making important financial decisions. This is an investment in my, in my view. You know, when you're, when you're investing in the financial markets and you're investing uh, in an education, there's, there's a few things going on. One is the tuition. Two is the opportunity cost. You'll be in school if you're going full time rather than the workforce full time. And I, I think it's important to consider um, what you expect on the back end. Uh, what, what, what do you think your earnings potential will be? Um, and and that, that, those are really the big ticket items. To Sabrina's question, though, if she was to open a 529 plan, um, I would do the education savings plan um, because it offers the, the flexibility as opposed to a state plan where you're locked into uh, or, or a specific college. Yeah, I rarely recommend the state plan unless you're going to put yeah. – you're really going to force your kid to go to that state school or state school options. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I think they're great if you have a lot of time. The, five, the 529 plans are fantastic. But I think the bigger, the bigger, hopefully this is not too outside the school. I think the bigger issue is, is the earnings potential on, on the other side of the MBA and, and just doing that analysis is what the, what's, what's the tuition that she anticipates? What is the starting salary? And I left, um, I could send a few Links over you for PayScale. PayScale is a great resource to to determine um, salary. You can search by location, schools attended, even some corporations give us salary ranges for MBA grads that they hire. 
Uh, and also U.S. News and World Report prevents some great salary data for MBA grads. I'll, I'll pass that link along, too, if you if you find that helpful. So um, I wish you luck. I think it's great. An MBA is, is a great thing to a great thing to have. And it opens up a lot of opportunities. Agreed. And I would also add that unless you're looking at a school in the top 10 for MBAs, I wouldn't uh, get into too much debt at, if or any debt, frankly. Uh, I would rather you look for ways to get scholarships, work while you're getting this MBA part-time because the ROI, and you know, this is generally speaking, but the ROI uh, in terms of salary is not going to be as high unless you went to, you know, a Wharton or a Harvard or a Stanford and any of those top 10 schools. I have friends who have gone to those higher uh, ranked schools and, you know, they'll take on a hundred thousand, if not more in debt. But when they graduate, they're making 200, $250,000 in some cases. So the loans can be quickly managed and perhaps even erased within, you know, five years or so. But that is not a good amount of money to take on as debt if you're going to uh, a school that's not Stanford or Harvard. And even then, I would say be careful. You know, it's not like, hey, just take it because you're going to Harvard. But, uh, you know, just like like you said, Jim, really analyze that ROI. And even if it takes you an extra year to get the MBA because you're maybe taking part-time classes and you're working, um, if, if you can do it without getting into debt, even better. If you can do it and pay your way as you're going, even better. Jim, thank you so much. Tell us a little bit more about where we can find you. I'm going to put everything on the site as well. But while we have you, tell us the best ways to reach you. Right. So so right now, the best way to find me is on clearandconfidentinvesting.com. Uh, right now, it's a landing page. And uh, you'll find information there about my upcoming course that I'm launching. And I'll soon be launching a YouTube channel, Your Best Mindset. We'll be there. We'll catch you. Thank you, Jim, for all of the work that you're putting out there in the world, the help and the support. Investing is something that uh, is just too important to not learn about. A lot of us, I think, come on this show as guests and listeners have said that is the one area growing up that they really feel they didn't get a rudimentary education on. So it's never too late. You've always got people like Jim on your side. Thank you so much. Thank you, Farnoosh. It was great being on. And, and I actually learned something very valuable for, from you, which was when you travel with your kids on vacation, bring lots of adults to help. Oh, yes. <laughs> the adults must outnumber the children. I love it. I love it. <laughs> for no other, for, for no one's benefit except mom so that she right. can leave and no one will, and everyone will still be safe. Thank you again, Jim. And to everyone listening, I hope your weekend is so money. Money.